นะโมทัสสะบาวะโวะระหะโสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบาวะโวะระหะโสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสนะโมทัสสะบาวะโวะระหะโสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอาปารุธาเดสังมัตสัตตวราเยสุรวันธาบมุจันทุสตังก็ this is the Uposita night, the full moon of April. And we've reaffirmed our sila. And so forth. So that this is the convention we're using. <coughs> so with the sila, this this is our agreement on behavior. So we uh, we agree to a life based on uh, on moral precepts of nonviolence. Of respect for other people's property. Um, in monastic life, Buddhist monasticism, celibacy, taking living a celibate life. In regards to speech and addictive substances and food, uh, pleasures and rest. So. It's learning the, the kind of agreements on not to seek uh, distractions, uh, sense pleasures as the objects of our life. And the Buddha emphasized this wasn't an ascetic; it doesn't mean to be an asceticism, a kind of denial of pleasure. But the aim, say, for Buddhist monasticism is the real, the realization of the Dhamma. The reality of dhamma, rather than uh, seeking happiness or comfort or pleasure through the senses, or um, just being caught in the endless uh, desires that we create in our mind—desires for becoming, desires for controlling, desires to get rid of what we don't like and don't want. So, like action and speech, is we can see in the world today how little agreement there is just on the basic precept of bana dibata, <coughs> refraining from intentionally taking the life of another human being. And we hear justification for war and violence all the time from the United States to the Al Qaeda and so forth. As There's always justification for capital punishment, uh, murdering, executing, or whatever words you want to use. Whether you call it terrorism or defense or uh, seeking justice to punish punishment for the for the people or the terrorists. But the but for for our reflection, it's the b a n a d i b a t a precept, 
the first precept. So this is an agreement we we have as in this community, as Buddhist community. Do not intentionally take the life of another human being. So in that respect we're putting it just on the human being level. But then for the bhikkhus and the siladharas and the and the samaneras, the uh, oh, the others are we we're, we're encouraging this respect for life in general, not just not just limiting to humanity, but to the animal kingdom, the insects, the fish, the birds, and so forth. It's a it's learning to respect the right to live of other creatures. But putting uh, this first precept at its most coarse interpretation, the most fundamental is not to intentionally take the life of another human being. And yet at this time in the world this is going on justified by righteous uh, governments in the name of God and Allah and all this. You know, this is the slaughter and murder and and also just the, the way modern warfare, uh, you know, can destroy, you know, just because of the, the weaponry that we have, you know, we call it collateral damage. All people happen to be, be in the wrong place, even though they're, they're not the, you know, they haven't done anything. Usually just ordinary men, women, children and that, that happen to be in the area where the, bombs explode. So this shows a great moral lack in this time in the in the human realm. Lack of respect for life. <clears throat> and of course, on the level of dualistic thinking, we can justify, you know, punishing the evil uh, forces, killing the devil, destroying all the terrible insects that cause uh, malaria and other terrible diseases, um, killing the criminals, the drug addicts. Um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of righteousness in regards to morality that can be rather frightening. So when we, when we talk about moralistic, mor or moralism, you know, this is where we grasp the idea of morality in a, in a kind of blind way and say, and then wanting to um, excommunicate or punish or ostracize or persecute uh, those who we consider immoral. <clears throat> but if you're in the Buddhist uh, way of looking at morality is a sila. The first precept is the, is putting it on, not on a high level, isn't it? Like if we were to ask all human beings to refrain from killing animals and fish and things, this, this would be too much, too, too refined to expect people to, to uh, be able to keep. But on the level of, say, in, in those practicing meditation, those uh, committed to the to the monastic 
life, lifestyle, and we can extend this act of this agreement of nonviolence towards uh, all creatures. But at its most coarse interpretation is not intentionally killing another human being. Now this doesn't mean that we never feel the desire to do so. You know, and <clears throat> wanting to murder somebody else is quite a common human emotion. So it's it's not it's not outlawing the feeling, but in regards to acting upon that feeling we refrain from doing so. So in, in Buddhism, I always appreciated this distinction of where sila is about action and speech, not about thought. The thought isn't moral or immoral. So, you know, you can say, where in my background, Christian background, it was very much uh, certain thoughts were considered immoral. You had immoral thoughts. It usually means you thought about sex or something. <laughs> so if you had, if you ever had sexual thoughts or fantasies, that was immoral, according to the way I was brought up. <coughs> so you, you had, you were, you know, I felt terribly frustrated uh, when I was, especially in, in uh, adolescence. Because you know, trying to to uh, not commit sin, and yet the thoughts, you know, were you know, I could I could restrain, refrain from acting, but in terms of of the thought process, these thoughts would tend to arise, and then, well, you know, one would react to them, with feeling guilty, or uh, if one entertained them for very long, one would feel like one was dirty or bad person or immoral. So in, in this when we apply this 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 value judgment to thought itself, you know, trying to uh, have moral thoughts and and try to eradicate immoral thoughts, it it uh, it gets too confusing. Too you can't do it. But in regards to action and speech, this we have this we can take responsibility for, for what we do with our bodies and, and our ability to use language, to speak. So this makes it, you know, for me this clarifies that. I can, I'm willing to take responsibility for action and speech, that I don't, you know, I want to do that. That's something I volunteer to do, not something that I feel I'm, that's forced on me because I'm a Buddhist monk. It's something I am glad to do. But then in terms of the uh, feeling, thinking, memories, emotions that arise in the mind. You know, these, these arise according to condition. You know, one doesn't understand. When, when, when I was a, 
uh, in puberty, you know, didn't understand what was happening to, to the body, what was going on. Uh, so, you know, it was, you'd hear various versions, various stories about it according to, you know, one's relative parents and, and uh, peers and teachers and so forth. And, and of course, in those days, this was, you know, back in the 40s, they, they in the United States, they were, had a very dualistic way of looking, kind of absolutizing right and wrong, good and bad. So because of this, you know, one felt kind of this endless kind of hopelessness, despair. If one wanted to be good, and I longed to be good, and yet I couldn't always uh, be as good as I as I thought I should be. And in regards to action and speech, possibly that was within, but in regards to emotions and thoughts like anger, uh, feeling angry, feeling fear, uh, basic primal emotions that all, all of us have as human beings. Um, these, what to do with them? How do, we, how do we relate to these primal emotions? If we're just judging them according to right and wrong, good or evil, So this way of, of criticizing and comparing and uh, what we call dualistic thinking, you know, is a very, is a divisive function that, that we have. We divide things with thoughts, with, uh, with our thought process, isn't it? This is good, that's bad, this is right, that's wrong. then um, modern education is based on discrimination and criticism and analysis, developing logic and reason and, and learning to think uh, in certain prescribed ways and, and that, that are praised and held up as models of, of what's good to do. So, so we develop uh, our critical faculties quite to a high degree. Most of us have, you know, read with information, mass media, been to universities and so forth. So we have, we have developed this faculty of dis discrimination, rationalization, judgment, value judgments, moral judgments, criticism, comparing which is better, which is best, which is the worst. So modern education is very much developing this, the, the critical faculties. Then in uh, Buddhist meditation, what we're learning to begin to access or recognize is not a critical faculty, but the discerning ability or panya, wisdom. So in terms of discerning, uh, it is not a critical function. We're not, discernment doesn't mean we pass judgment, but we, 
we know things as they are. So this is uh, what we call sati sampachanya, sati panya. And this, uh, this ability is not highly developed in the Western world or anywhere else either, as a matter of fact. I mean, we, you know, so much of the problems that, that we have in uh, everywhere, both with our own personal relationships and families and governments, internationally, religion. You know how many, there's, there's in Sri Lanka now, there are Buddhist monks uh, forming a political party. And <coughs> you know, even with, uh, with such a clear teaching as the Lord Buddha, yet people till, still manage to divide it up, take sides and make it into a very complex kind of experience. Whose who's, uh, Nikaya is the best? Who is the purest? Who is the, which form is the real, the, real, the true teaching of the Lord Buddha? And which, whose sila is, is better than whose? And so we easily take, uh, you know, grasp the, the very teaching of the Lord Buddha. And that's exactly what the, the Buddha was pointing or saying not to do, is not to grasp, but to recognize the suffering that's caused through grasping. So to be able to, to discern, to be able to see clearly suffering that is caused through grasping, uh, then this, this is what we mean by mindfulness or awareness. Like discernment, then, is, is uh, to know things as they are. We know a, a thought or a feeling. We, ha we have the awareness to, to see, to feel, to be with the way it is in terms of the emotional condition of the present or the thinking process, the physical body itself. We, we, it's sensitive form, so we, we're aware of the, of the atmosphere or the ambience of a situation or a place or a group of people. You know, we feel heat and cold. We can pick up the, the feelings of others. We are sensitive to the, the joy or misery that, that uh, of the human beings around us. So in terms of recognizing the way it is, the, the Buddha taught or encouraged us to awaken and to really notice. What is it like, really? And of course, to be able to do this, we have to, to let go of all our preconceptions, assumptions about ourselves or the world we're living in. Uh, and if I if I try to interpret ex experience through personal perceptions, then that, that is not liberating. When I try to explain experience and my life through the sense of myself as a personality, as a physical being with a, with a history, a biography, an autobiography, uh, so forth, then that is colored 
by the cultural conditioning that the habit tendencies in the, the thinking process. So what the Buddha pointed to was to get beyond through the, through the simple ability that we all have at this very, very moment to pay attention, to be fully present. And that is, whether you know it or not, that is not personal. That's not a personal quality. You can't, as soon as you claim it, uh, I'm a very mindful, I'm very, being very mindful right now, then it becomes more than what it is. So this simple, imminent act of, of just attention and awareness of opening to the present is so very simple uh, and yet for the complexity of our conditioning it's, it's you know, we, we don't, we, it's hard to recognize or appreciate or understand. <coughs> now like if we we look at, we want to attain Nibbana. So we, in the, using Buddhist terminology, so Nibbana, Nirvana, some, that's some very desirable state, supposedly, that, <coughs> that if you practice and do all the right things, you, you'll be able to attain, maybe. And, uh, and so the word itself, which for us is, a, is an exotic word, you know, it's, Nibbana, it's not an English word, so, it, you know, we can, uh, and, and yet it's oftentimes in, used in English context, meaning, uh, you know, kind of heavenly happiness, blissful state of, um, I had a nirvanic experience, meaning I was probably in a state of ecstatic bliss. But is that what the Buddha meant by Nibbana, you know? And, then, and even in, in Buddhist uh, countries, oftentimes it's held up, it's, it's because of the way thinking works. It, it becomes ca caught up in this dualism, so it's put on a, on a high level. A supreme attainment, the ultimate attainment. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's in the way we think, it's linear and hierarchical, and so Nibbana is at the very top of it. So it seems out of reach on that level. You know, it's out so high and so refined, so sublime, uh, that, of course, it's, you know, when we think about it with, with and we, we think of ourselves, we see ourselves through our own uh, attachments to the thoughts and views we have about ourselves, then it seems too high, too remote, too impossible for any of us to achieve, to get. Now notice that the, the Buddha's emphasis was, wasn't on attainment or achievement, it was on awakening. Awakening is not an achievement, you know, because it's, it's, it's very ordinary. It's not like, you know, something really difficult that that only, you know, very special people are capable of doing. But it is so very ordinary that it doesn't seem like anything, you know, in terms of worldly values. We can, 
we could say, so what, you know? I want to get these high levels of samadhi where you have psychic powers and you can fly in the air and, and, and you can walk on the water and you can read people's minds and, and uh, you can do fantastic things that ordinary people can't do. Go into trances, go into states of bliss for, for a week at a time, you know, and just stay in a state of unmitigated bliss for a whole week. And uh, these are very, you know, these sound very attractive and very special, and, but very, you know, things that we can try to attain. Special states or elevated states or refined states of consciousness. But ordinary consciousness, here and now, awakened attention, you know, can easily be seen as, as nothing, not worth anything, worthless. <coughs> Nibbana then is, is, you know, then even higher than the jhanas. You know, you go up the ladder and you get the jhanas and you get Nibbana and get way up there. And, uh, and then uh, you, um, you know, you, if you, if that's, that's the way we create the, the perceptions around words. So the Buddha emphasis on, on awareness and investigation and looking into and seeing and knowing uh, to be able to trust our own intuitive wisdom, not to just try to, to live by defined definitions of poly terms that we get from books or by great teachers, but you know, not to try to fit our experience into, into the concepts that we get from others, but to use the concepts in order to investigate the reality. But what we experience only only you can know what you're experiencing right now. The way it is for you, each one of you at this very moment, you're the only one that really knows. So it's learning to trust that, that ability to, to awaken, the puto, awaken, aware, it's, it's, uh, it discerns, but it's not critical, it's not passing judgments on anything that you're feeling or thinking right now. So if you're thinking of murdering me right now, discernment just knows this is the way it is. Then, then your critical mind would come in and say, that's wrong, you shouldn't think like that, that's a wrong thought, it's evil. Uh, and then you start criticizing yourself as being an evil person because you have these, these maniacal thoughts. You see the difference? The discerning ability just is a recognition of, it knows, knows things, it knows it for what it is, but it doesn't add anything to it, doesn't make any problem about it, doesn't compound it, doesn't complicate it. Where the critical mind will complicate it. This, this is a bad thought. Already it's more than what it is. 
this is my my bad karma. You know, why do I have these murderous desires? Uh, what's wrong with me? Is it because of, you know, my social background or am I a psychopath or do I need psychiatry or and then it goes, you know, then it goes, off it goes into, uh, into all the complexities of doubt and worry and speculation, judgment, value judgment, moral judgment. <clears throat> now when we, when we uh, take the precepts and, uh, and take the bapacha ask for the going forth and the upasambhadas, then this is, uh, this is a traditional form, conventional form that has been carried down in this tradition for several thousand years. But what it really amounts to in a practical way is uh, giving uh, permission to use the Dhamma Vinaya. And then we agree, you know, we agree because we have to ask three times to, for them to let us in. You ask once and they won't let you, they won't accept you. You have to ask three times. And then they give, they, they see that you're serious. This becomes quite just a, a ceremony, but there is a, there is a, 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 you know, reason to it. That this is, you know, our celibacy, our, cho- our life of celibacy is our own choice. It's not forced on us. You know, we, none of us were forced to become Buddhist monks or nuns. We asked, we begged, we, we requested, we demanded, whatever way you did it. So, then we, this means we, we're taking on this, we agree to this level of moral behavior or sila. So this is, this is how we relate to each other in this community. Uh, in, in the, we do this, you know, like so much of Vinya is just etiquette, good manners and being sensitive to the environment and the way of relating to each other, respecting each other. Uh, in in uh, in proper ways, ways that are helpful to create uh, an environment that is quite uh, pleasant to live in, safe to live in. This isn't the jungle here at Amaravati, is it? It's not. You know, you're not. You know, the jungle is a symbol for. You know, there's no there's no moral law in the jungle. It's survival of the fittest. You know the big fish eating the little ones. You've just got to, you know, you've got to spend your life protecting yourself all the time. You can't think about morality or right or wrong or, or anything like that. Your, your aim is, is, is procreation and survival. Law of the jungle. So in, uh, say, in, uh, in, say in, in monastic community, then uh, this out of this, I've come out of that jungle, and we we determine how we're going to live. So precepts that we've taken, the the five precepts that the lay community take, the eight precepts, ten, and the uh, Patimoka rules, the 
the Vinaya are just agreements on action and speech and relationship. So these are prescribed, you know, and we, since we agree to it, this is, makes life simple. We, we, don't have, we don't have to spend a lot of time just, you know, thinking about a lot of things that we would if we didn't have such an agreement. You know, like not having money, not carrying money, not uh, having private wealth. It makes life very simple for us. uh, And being celibate makes life much more easy for us, isn't it? If we were, you know, if if we were all having relationships with each other, this tends to to dominate conscious experience, to obsess the mind. Where in this way we we still have those energies and those desires. They're quite natural to this to this to the human condition. But our relationship to sexuality is one of awareness, not judgment, not morally judging or or criticizing, but recognizing discerning sexual feeling, sexual energy. It is what it is. It's like this. Sexual desires like this. Anger is like this. Uh, confusion and doubt, despair is like this. Fear, worry, anxiety is like this. I mean, we, so when these, when these arise, when the conditions for these conditions arise in consciousness, we're, we're, we're receiving them. We're recognizing them. We know them. We're discerning, but not judging. Not taking sides. Not compounding. Not complicating it. This awareness is such a powerful reality. Once you begin to appreciate it, now with awareness, it's really we have to. It's like surrendering to it, learning to recognize and just totally trust, because it's like nothing at all in terms of your thinking mind. The more you try to become aware, like I've got to be aware. And and, and you, you've got these ideas about what awareness and mindfulness is, then you're making it very complicated. You're creating it into more than what it is. So you hear people, pra- I practice a w- uh, mindfulness. And they walk very slowly and they do everything in a very prescribed and, and affected manner. And then, then they, I'm really being aware, you know. But is that, you know, then the, 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 it, it one easily attaches to methods of awareness as the only way to be aware. Where the actual awareness is very simple right now. It's not something that you can't be right at this very moment. Just the, the, sim- the simple act of listening, of paying attention, of, of opening to this present moment. Relaxing into this moment, rather you're not trying to, you know, when you try too hard, you 
you, you overlook it, you don't see it. So like when you're trying to be mindful, you, you miss it. So don't try to be mindful, just trust yourself to be open to this moment. It's very ordinary, very natural, very simple. And as you begin to recognize or realize this, it's, it, you know, it is powerful. It is a way of liberation, just that much. It is the gate or the door to the deathless. It is the way out of suffering. So it's not an attainment or not like a, you know, something remote and difficult and, and beyond your ability unless you are determined to think that. If you, if you have decided that's the way it is, <laughs> Uh, you know that's the way it is for you but in terms of you know my own experience in practicing this the Buddhist teaching and in also in understanding using the Buddhist teaching but not trying to not grasping them and, and trying to fit experience into some preconceived idea that I've taken out of Buddhist text but in learning to recognize, to trust myself in order to, to recognize and to, and to uh, re- remind myself to relax, open, rest in this moment, receive things, receive this moment in whatever, you know, whatever is the way it is, and it's pleasant or unpleasant, painful or not, or uh, feeling fear or anxiety or feel safe or, or whatever. Whatever is present is received. It's not, it's, not a, it's not picking and choosing and making a fuss. It's the will, willingness to receive the flow of life as we experience it through this form. So this winter we had this, uh, I really enjoyed this winter's retreat and uh, it's so, uh, such an, such an ideal setup here. Uh, English winter, got to love the English winters, everybody hates English winters but me. <laughs> and uh, I like the kind of stillness the short days, I like the whole thing. The cold, I like the cold. <clears throat> Sitting here in the temple, and it's cold out there, and you, so you, you know, it's not pulling out. Right now, it's getting quite you know, spring-like, so you feel this urge to go out. And the daffodils are fantastic, and the but in wintertime, there isn't that, isn't it? It's just time for hibernation, for going inward, like a bear into a cave. <laughs> but this is, these, these opportunities also, these are kind of especially 
contrived opportunities that we provide here. But, but the real practice is right now, wherever, whatever happening, here, in the kitchen, home, whatever, you know, state of state you're in, whatever is happening for you or to you in the present, this willingness to open, to receive life, means that we're, we're actually, you know, developing the path, the Eightfold Path, just through the simple, imminent act of awareness. And as we, as we recognize that, then that awareness is like, we, you know, it's, it has, once we fully trust it, fully, completely surrender to, to awareness, then that, that is a tremendous power. So the, the delusions and the confusions of the sensory world are seen in terms of what they really are, not in terms of of the complicated reactions we might be feeling about it. So, it, you know, the, in terms of karma, in terms of, of uh, conscious experience, uh, sensory experience, um, <coughs> intellectual abilities, emotional habits, all these, you know, uh, these can sound, these become very complicated. You know, with thinking one thing, we know that something is right and good and, and yet emotionally we're feeling we want to do something that we know is bad. You know, we have this, this ability to recognize, you know, to, to rationalize, to create hierarchies and to put things in terms of ideals of how things should be. And yet emotionally we can feel very, you know, we know we shouldn't be angry and hate people and want to kill them, but then we might feel that way emotionally. We know we shouldn't be jealous and mean and, and envious of others and, and begrudge them things and be, you know, and uh, we, we should be glad for, for the rich and the beautiful and, and, and have joy and happiness and all the, we know how things should be, how we should be, but then how we do we feel at this very moment. So in terms of, of idealism, of being able to create perfect ideas of how things should be, utopian societies and, and, and ideals of the highest order, the most beautiful ideals, we're quite capable of creating such conditions. And then emotionally, you know, we get confused because emotionally we aren't like that at all. Instead of loving all creatures, we sometimes hate them all. And so forth. So that this is, this is where we get very confused and lost. The war between the... the uh, the brain and the heart. So in terms of awareness in this present moment, in the awareness, ability to be aware, means we accept both. 
Awareness includes, it doesn't discriminate. It discerns, but it doesn't, doesn't make a judgment about, well, your brain is very, has these beautiful ideals and you should be like that and these emotions are very low and selfish and ugly and you shouldn't be feeling them. Awareness allows what we're feeling to be fully accepted in consciousness as well as our idealism. Because it, it receives, you know, it has everything. It, it's, not, it's not just a linear process. It has this, this great capacity to include everything in this moment. So the, the, the rational idealism and the emotional uh, uh, anger. We say, so this, this is the only way out of that dilemma because through this trust, and, and uh, surrender to awareness, then these things resolve themselves. You know, when, if we're trying to, if, you know, we've got ideas, we've got to get rid of these childish emotions and try to, to attain these rational ideals, we're never going to succeed. We're going to end up either going crazy or being just depressed and despairing because it's an impossibility. Because both belong. You know, both, if whatever you're feeling or experiencing belong at this moment, the conditions, it means that the conditions for these emotions, these feelings are present. This is why I'm feeling like this. So then you, and then in this way we we accept that. But conditioned phenomena has its own, you know, it, it rises, ceases, it's changing. So it's not, it's not like one is stuck with some kind of, you know, unless you grasp the idea I'm stuck with some kind of childish emotional habit. <clears throat> and then, of course, you're, you're, you're creating the, the illusion of I am this person that has these Childish emotions. Childish emotions is a value judgment, isn't it? That means you're, you know, childish emotions are something you shouldn't have if you're an adult. You know, if you're a seventy-year-old Buddhist monk with thirty-eight pansas, shouldn't have childish emotions. <laughs> I mean, that then it becomes what? The whole thing is, is caught in a perception of self and judgment, value judgments and so forth. But in terms of awareness, the body includes the body, the, what we call the five khandhas, the rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara, vinyana, the six ayatanas, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, all that we're, you know, thinking, feeling, experiencing, good, bad, right and wrong, refined, coarse, whatever, internally, in the mind and externally through the, through the senses. So this is what we mean by intuitive wisdom. I mean, it's, a base, it's a natural wisdom, it's not a created wisdom, it's not something you learn through study, is something that's natural to us that operates through the awareness, 
when we learn to trust it. So that's why the sati and panya are always used together. Sati panya. So I'll be going to uh, uh, Santa Jitarama in uh, Italy in a few days and be there giving a retreat uh, and then afterwards going to France for a, a week or so and be back around the 25th of April. Uh, you know, this is all convention <laughs> about coming and going. <laughs> Going to different countries, you know. You know, this is this part of the conventional reality. <coughs> but in terms of the practice, it's always the same. You know, this is what I try, especially this winter, trying to to uh, to get across, to learn to trust this more, and to not, you know, not to see meditation in terms of your personal, how you feel about yourself as a person. Or, or how you, how you hold the word meditation, you know, or how you kind of define that in your mind, is because so much of the way we we define it is like through achievement, attainment. Uh, I've got to get this in order to get that, and on and on like this. So it, it this is the way the thinking mind works. So what I'm really saying is learning to trust. To, to recognize this awareness. Relax with it. Take it easy. Don't, you know, it's not something you can kind of push yourself into. You know, it's something you, you begin to recognize. The more you relax and pay attention, it's always like a relaxed attention, not a, you know, a stressed attention. You're aware, you're open, the state of relax, the sense of resting, opening, alertness. So I offer this as a reflection.